You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. There's this organization. It's called One Million Moms. And if you go to their Facebook page, there's about, I think, eight or 9,000 of them, maybe 10, 12,000 of them now. But they call themselves One Million Moms, so they are. And they crank up the religious right. They, they crank up mobs. Every time somebody on television gets a blowjob, gets finger banged, whenever any, anybody has a dirty ad that's slightly sexually suggestive, you can count on One Million Moms putting out a press release. That's what these people do, spitting out a press release condemning the sexual immorality of waka waka waka. I haven't gone online yet to search to see if one million moms is losing their shit about my favorite Super Bowl ad. I thought my favorite Super Bowl ad was going to be the one for Chevy trucks. Did you all watch the Super Bowl? If you didn't watch the Super Bowl, you might want to skip this week's intro. The one for Chevy trucks where they promoted bovine polygamy and bovine sister wives. They bring a bull to a whole bunch of cows. And rather than scolding those cows and encouraging those cows to control their libidos, as Mike Huckabee scolds and encourages American women to do, they're just happy to see that bull. And everybody in America is very happy that those cows are going to get the shit fucked out of them by that bull. American women, however, you need to control your libidos because sex is for cows. Anyway, there, I thought that would be my favorite ad because bovine sister wives, how cool is that? But no, it was the Butterfinger ad that I did not see coming. Did you watch the Super Bowl? Did you see this ad? Peanut butter and chocolate are sitting on a couch in a marriage counselor's office um, talking about their relationship and it's gotten a little stale and it's gotten a little dull. And the counselor suggests that they introduce to their relationship Butterfinger who's this guy in a kind of – flashy Butterfinger colored tracksuit and he jumps on the couch with him and it turns into what looks like kind of a cuddle puddle orgy thing, a three-way. They're having a three-way and not just any three-way but an MMF three-way, the sort of higher bar three-way for most straight people. FFM, two women and a dude, everybody's down with it. MMF, a lot of guys, they, you know, they, you know that's like a higher bar. It's harder for them to wrap their lips around and anything else, their brains. And I just watched this ad going, holy fucking shit. They are saying there's this anthropomorphized peanut butter and chocolate couple and the solution to the boredom in their marriage that's creeped in is kind of a sexual adventure. And I thought watching this, why wasn't I consulted? Or why – I'm sure I was consulted. This is basically – this is my recommendation to a lot of couples who are facing this kind of boredom. Is have a sexual adventure together. Get out there and do something or someone to spice it up. We talk about this all the time. And uh, I jumped on Twitter and I saw that people were saying, wait till Dan Savage sees this ad. He's going to be so proud. And I thought, proud? No, I'm mad. I want my check. I, I, I want credit. I want concept credit for this ad. If you've watched it, if you just Google Butterfinger Super Bowl ad, it pops right up. Unfortunately, at the very end, they have to because MMF three-ways are very scary for straight people. They have to do this thing at the very end where Peanut Butter is watching Butterfinger massage chocolate and chocolate's the lady. Massage chocolate shoulders and everyone's been getting sort of 
comfy and cuddly on the couch and Peanut Butter turns around and suggests that Butterfinger maybe massage his shoulders and Butterfinger looks at him a little squicked and says, no, I, I'm good touching the lady. No interest in touching you. And that was unfortunate and slightly homophobic. But hey, you could look at it that way, slightly homophobic. Or you can say, hey, by visibility, clearly Peanut Butter is bisexual and is down with messing around with Butterfinger. And so, unfortunately, in their first MMF three-way, peanut butter and chocolate picked someone who is not bi. Butterfinger is not bi. But I have hope for the future that at a certain point, peanut butter and chocolate will chance upon another third, a different M, who is willing to have some sexual contact with clearly bisexual peanut butter. So a blow was struck not just for sexual adventure and monogamishamy during the Super Bowl – but for by visibility too. It was a win, win, win. Oh, and uh, the Seattle Seahawks won the Super Bowl. Contra my brother Billy, who was a guest on the show a few weeks ago, who said that teams named after birds never win the Super Bowl. The Seahawks of Washington State, where we have legal gay marriage, legal pot. We won the Super Bowl. Just saying. And now your calls. Hi. So I'm a 40-something-year-old Great woman in an open relationship, and I had some questions about STDs and condom use. The situation is that my husband and I are in an open relationship. Um, I've had several partners. I tend to have one partner for a few months and sort of an exclusive partner for a few months to a year, and then um, we might find other partners. Um, my husband, on the other hand, the way he's been doing open marriage is more going to these sex events where there's uh, many people, I guess it'd be basically like an orgy. So we were having a conversation about whether to use condoms when giving blowjobs. So I'm typically with a man who is married and also in a similar situation to me where they have one partner. That's me outside of their marriage. Um, and I do not use condoms when giving a blowjob and let them, and I also let them come in my mouth sometimes. It didn't seem like a high-risk activity to me. I did some research. <clears throat> didn't seem like a, a way to really transmit STDs, so I, it seemed okay to me. Um, my husband, on the other hand, when he goes to these orgies, he's with men and women, and it seemed like a bit higher-risk activity. So anyways, he did the same thing, giving a blowjob to a, a man without using a condom and, and let the man come in his mouth. That seemed a little higher risk to me, and I thought he should have used a condom. So I just wondered about your thoughts about that, if I was if I was right about this, or you think that we're both wrong, we should both be using condoms, or, or this is not something of, of a great concern. In my case, I, I do typically ask my partners if they've been tested before I become involved with them, and I also get tested before I find a new partner. And also, if, do you think my husband and I should be using condoms with each other? Um, we always use condoms for any kind of intercourse with other people. We have started using condoms with each other while we're trying to figure this all out. If you're going to have sex with more than one person, you are signing up for a greater risk for STIs. You just are. It's unavoidable. Um, a study out of the Netherlands in 2010 found that swingers 45 and up, and that sounds like your age range, um, had higher rates of uh, sexually transmitted infections than men who have sex with men and prostitutes, two groups that are, of course, considered at highest, quote-unquote, risk for STI infections. Heterosexual swingers, 45 and up, had higher rates of STI infection, in part because many didn't use protection. Some were 
some many of the women were postmenopausal and they figured that they didn't need to use protection. Um, they figured that because they were all old and straight that they weren't really at risk for anything and obviously untrue. There's a clash here in the way you do openness and multi-partner sex and your husband does it. You're doing it in a very kind of controlled, uh, negotiated safety way. We're going to test. We're going to be semi-exclusive, just like the three or four of us will be fluid bonded. And it sounds like your husband is doing a much more expansive orgy, anything goes, randos, quasi-anonymous or nearly anonymous partner-a-thon. Um, that places you at risk and the risk that that places you at places your partners at. So yes, yes, out of consideration for your partners, particularly if you're fluid bonded, you do need to use condoms potentially with your husband. That said, oral sex is relatively low risk compared to penetrative sex, vaginal or anal. Anal, of course, being highest risk and the most efficient mode of uh, HIV transmission uh, out there. You can get oral gonorrhea. You can get oral syphilis. You can get herpes. All You can get a lot of the common sexually transmitted infections orally and you can pass them orally. Your husband should be testing regularly. Testing regularly though isn't going to provide retroactive protection to you and your partners by extension if he was infected or acquired gonorrhea since the last time he tested. So what should you do? Well, I think you have to accept that the way in which you are living, the, the sex life that you and your husband have, the, the, the sexual contacts and sexual community that you enjoy being a part of incurs a, a higher degree of risk of STIs and you can't be whiny-ass babies about that. You can't eliminate that risk. You can mitigate for it by using condoms with your husband. You can mitigate for it by con using condoms with your partners. You can mitigate for it by reducing the numbers of sexual contacts. You can mitigate for it by encouraging your husband or insisting, if you guys have that kind of veto power over each other's sexual expression, that your husband construct a sex life for himself that's more closely modeled on yours, which of course does not provide absolute protection to you but a higher degree of protection. It's not 100 percent safe what you're doing. Um, but there are safer ways for your husband to have his multiple partners uh, and a higher degree of protection as well and greater degree of safety for you. But with the numbers of partners that you have and the numbers of partners that he has, you are at greater risk and that is unavoidable. And it is also understandable. It's legitimate. You weigh risk against pleasure and you decide if the pleasures are worth the risks. That's what we do when we snowboard. It's what we do when we jump out of airplanes. It's what we do when we go water skiing. It's what we do when we eat that sushi that can kill you if the guy made it wrong. We look at the risk-benefit analysis and we say, here are the risks, here are the benefits. I am going to take this risk because the benefit, in my mind, outweighs the risk. And you should look at the pleasure and the connection and the community that your sex life and your husband's sex life creates for you guys and decide if all of that is worth the heightened risk of STI transmission. If it is, then you live with that heightened risk and you be vigilant about your health and your safety and testing and you encourage your husband to be perhaps a little bit more selective and careful. And then when it happens, if it happens, you don't freak out and panic and act like you got hit by a meteor or that the world has been somehow unfair to you. This was a known potential consequence, an STI infection. And all of you in your circle should handle it like grown-ups if and when somebody comes down with something. Uh, 
Hi, my name is John. Uh, I'm calling to get some advice. Uh, I dated a girl online for about a month and a half. We went on four dates, and we moved things really fast between us. We had sex on the second date, I guess. And uh, after four dates, uh, normally we were texting each other a lot, especially from her end, texting me and emailing me constantly. And after the fourth date, she got really distanced from me. So I emailed her a couple of days after our fourth date. She didn't respond right away, which I was concerned about. And then about four days later, she sent over email that she thought I was a great guy um, and really smart and funny, but she just didn't feel in her heart that we had long-term potential, which kind of hurt because she was constantly like trying to extend our dates and spend more time with me. I called her after that, not to ask for her back, but just kind of say I was surprised to get her email because she seemed so interested in me. And then I kind of thought this was going to turn into a relationship. And she had told me that she recently got out of a long-term relationship and was leading me on. Um, that's why she was sending me all the messages. Uh, I mean, I don't know, on the phone, I, I kind of started to cry. And, uh, you know, she didn't even try to console me in any way, which was somewhat concerning. Um, and then I ended it, uh, you know, just hung up the phone. Uh, I guess I'm just dealing with the shock of it all. Because, like I said, she constantly wanted to spend more time with me. And I don't know what to say, but whenever we had sex, it was just very passionate and we would do it numerous times. So uh, about a week ago, randomly, I was walking in a parking lot and I ran into her. And I, I saw her and she put this big smile on her face and said hi to me. And I kind of was shocked to see her. And I just said, hey, and kind of moved on um, and walked to my car. I guess I'm just looking for some, some advice, some explanation as to why you think she could have ended it with me. Because, I don't know, it's just, I can't stop thinking about it. And I think about contacting her again a lot and calling her or emailing her. And I just don't think it's the right thing to do. But, I, you know, I just can't get her out of my head. And I, I just feel like I have no closure to this situation, which is really uh, just what I'm looking for. Because I want to move on and date other people um, and stop thinking about her. Uh, I guess it just hurt because I thought she was a special person to me, but it turns out that she wasn't. When you say that she said to you on the phone when you called her about that email that she recently got out of a long-term relationship and she was leading you on, there's two ways to interpret that. Uh, Either she recently got out of a long-term relationship and maliciously and sadistically stomped on you and led you on because – of a surfeit of cruelty in her heart. She just wanted to turn around and make somebody else suffer. Or she recently got out of a long-term relationship and she was on the rebound and she said things to you, you know, in that sort of rebound headspace that amounted to leading you on because she wasn't fully present emotionally. She didn't understand exactly what she was doing and that was unfair to you and she apologizes. So it was one or the other, right? If it was the latter, if what she said and in the context of the call, it was clear that she led you on unintentionally and she felt bad about it, there you have your explanation. There you have your closure, right? She was on the rebound. She bounced off you. She said things to you in the emotional chaos of her breakup that she shouldn't have said. She was in a raw place and she bonded with you too quickly and said things that she thought she meant but ultimately she didn't mean and she feels terrible. If it was the former, if she said, I was on the rebound, I was dumped, I just got out of a long-term relationship and I shat on you because I'm a malicious fuck, right? Because I wanted to make you suffer. There you have your closure. 
She is a dumb, fucking, vicious monster. And there's your closure. People talk about that all the time when a relationship ends, particularly when it ends in an unsatisfactory way, right? Which means not the funeral home for most people. It ended because they got divorced or broken up with or dumped and I don't have closure. Closure isn't something that your ex sends you like a box of chocolates, right? Closure isn't something necessarily that you are given. It's something that you do. You slam it shut. You can do that. You have the power to close this, to say it didn't work out. I thought it might have been something, but it wasn't anything. That fucking happens. It happens to a lot of people. It has happened to my friends. It happened to my parents perhaps before they met each other. It happened to me. It will happen to me potentially again. I have probably done the same to other people, ended a relationship and given them an explanation or not given them an explanation that left them feeling the way I feel now. This shit happens. And if it's closure you need, then it's closure you should do. Slam it shut. She was either on the rebound and you were an unintentional victim of the emotional chaos of the end of that relationship or she was a malicious fucking shitbag and you were hurt. What other closure do you need? What other explanation do you need? I get that it hurts. I, I get it. I have been there. I have been where you are. I've also been her. I have also done to guys what she just did to you and felt bad about it. So here's how you get over her. You smile at her the next time you run into her and you keep walking. You date other people. You resolve to be the fuck over it. You remind yourself that closure is something that you can fucking do for yourself. That it's not something you need someone else to do for you. It's not a goddamn root canal. You can do it yourself. You can slam it shut. Slam it shut. Go date other girls. Hi, Dan. I am a 25-year-old bisexual woman. I've recently started um, dating after several years of really no steady relationships, but a fair amount of casual sex. Um, the few romantic relationships I have had in the past have all been with women, and now I'm meeting a man. Um, we've been going out for about a month now, and we just had sex for the first time. And as I'm going down on him, I had this horrible thought of, oh, God, I, I can't just suck dick forever. Not even this dick per se, but in general, I just can't stand the thought of not also having sex with women uh, in the future. I don't know if I would feel the same way if I was dating a woman or not. I really, I enjoy sex with people of you know, whatever your bits are, I enjoy them. Um, so I guess my, my question is, after having so much sexual freedom and flexibility for so long, is this kind of a normal knee-jerk reaction to the idea of monogamy? Or do I need to be more honest with myself and my partner about my need for sexual variety, even if I am romantically monogamous? Is it an indication that you need a open relationship, that you couldn't be monogamous with a man? Or was it just a panic attack? And as you think about committing to this guy, I don't know. But it is something you might want to share with him. You're bisexual and one of the important things you need to do as you – sort of form committed relationships, uh, what you need to do before you form a committed relationship is really know yourself. And if something that you know about yourself is that you can't be just with men all your life, then you need to tell him that. You need to put that on the table. You need to be honest about that and say, I love you. I could totally have a committed relationship with you if you're at the I love you stage yet, which you're probably not at a month. But when you get there, but I don't think that I'm 
going to be able to be monogamous to you uh, all my life. I think that I'm going to need an open relationship to be happy, uh, an open relationship so that I don't sabotage the relationship that we're in and everything that we're building together and see what he says. And then if he says I couldn't do that, you know that you are wrong for each other and you should end the relationship. But you'll be less afraid of blowing him and less afraid of his dick if his dick doesn't symbolize for you the end of pussy. You don't know if it is the end of pussy, his dick. If access to his dick means no pussy forever, that's something he knows. But that might not be the case. So you might want to use your words and talk to him about it. Hi, Dan. I'm calling from lovely San Diego in California. And I just had a question, not so much about a relationship or anything like that, but more so about how to get involved with helping the LGBT cause in Russia. I'm Russian and I currently have a girlfriend and although I don't self-identify with anything under any manner, um, I still want to do something to help and to help all the wonderful people that are on the front lines and who are getting hurt every single day, who are speaking up and being so strong and are doing all they can. Joining us by phone, Masha Gessen. She's a Russian-American journalist, New York Times columnist, the author of numerous books, including The Man Without a Face, The Unlikely Rise of Vladimir Putin. Her latest book is Words Will Break Cement, The Passion of Pussy Riot. She's also the co-editor of the new anthology Gay Propaganda, Russian Love Stories, which was just released by OR Press. It's relevant to mention that Masha is a lesbian and outspoken activist for LGBT equality in Russia who, until very recently, resided in Moscow with her wife and three children. She now lives in New York City. Thank you for jumping on the phone with us today, Masha. Thank you. It's great to be here. Uh, so for people who may not uh, be as informed as the caller, uh, can you run us through what is going on in Russia? Well, what's going on in Russia is a Kremlin-orchestrated campaign of hate against gays and lesbians. There have been a couple of pieces of legislation. Uh, there's a ban on homosexual propaganda that basically criminalizes any portrayal uh, or any even a hint uh, of, uh, of saying that, uh, that uh, LGBT people are normal. And uh, the reason I use the word normal is because actually there was a judgment a few days ago uh, handed down by a court in Khabarovsk that found the editor-in-chief of a newspaper guilty of violating the ban on homosexual propaganda because the paper had published a profile of a gay teacher who said he was normal. So um, in addition to that, there is a ban on same-sex adoptions. There's a, a campaign to uh, start removing children from same-sex families. There's another campaign to recriminalize homosexuality, and actually I could go on. Uh, the, the point is that there's, uh, there's a huge rise in uh, anti-gay violence, uh, that, and that is probably a more immediate uh, and dangerous effect uh, than even all of this insane legislation. And it's sort of as a result of all this insane legislation, war has been declared on LGBT people in Russia, and it has empowered thugs. There's the Occupy Pedophilia movement, which is seems to be all about beating up and brutalizing and outing gay teenagers. Uh, right. The, the Occupy movement actually has a couple of branches. It has the pedophilia branch, branch where they humiliate teenagers, and then there's the Occupy Gerontophilia branch when the, uh, in which they humiliate uh, and publicly beat up and videotape the beatings of uh, the adult gay men. 
Uh, and that's just one of many varieties of violence that uh, that have flourished in Russia in the last couple of years, incited by the Kremlin, incited by the television, incited by this legislation. And it in, this is the reason now that you reside in New York City. You did live in Moscow, which was a very ballsy and brave thing as a journalist, particularly one who was writing about Vladimir Putin in the way that you were, honestly uh, and exhaustively. A lot of journalists have been targeted for violence. Journalists have died, but you fled the country with your family after this law was floated that would have taken your children from you. Right. The law hasn't been passed yet, but I decided not to wait around until we passed the law and actually got around to taking my children. So uh, that, that, that legislation is pending, and I do think it's going to pass. Uh, and for me, the difference was, you know, I, knew, I always knew I was in a dangerous field, and, uh, but it's one thing to for better or worse, take risks myself. And it's another thing to feel like I'm taking risks with my children's lives. And uh, when you start talking about that, it's like there's no level of risk that's acceptable. I traveled to Moscow in 1989. I was living in West Berlin and in East Berlin. My uh, then boyfriend and I, we met some gay men who were tourists in East Berlin from uh, Moscow. And they invited us to come and you needed an invitation from somebody who resided in Moscow to visit Moscow at the time to get a visa. And we we went and I went and I was – it's just so distressing to me personally. I met all of these men. Um, I met a couple of lesbians. Everyone was so hopeful as change was sweeping across Eastern Europe for their futures, for the future of gay men and lesbians in Russia. And how did it come to this pass? There, things did improve, did they not? Things improved significantly, I'd say, through the 90s and the early 2000s. It was never Western Europe. We never sort of fully compensated for uh, having had the Soviet Union when, when, when the Western world was having a sexual revolution. But it certainly was getting a lot more comfortable to live in. For years, I was the only publicly out person in the country. Uh, and then all of a sudden, I wasn't anymore. Uh, which which was great. So um, one of the weird and, and, and scary things about these laws and about this whole campaign is that uh, it's actually happening in a country that was beginning to feel normal for, for gay people. So there's like not a closet for people to hide in. Because people had come uh, out. People had come out publicly and then these laws were passed and suddenly who they were was criminal. The, the law against gay propaganda, some people don't understand. The religious right in America is working hard to confuse the issue. It criminalizes being out. It is considered gay propaganda to say publicly that you are gay. This is correct. And uh, and it's also not clear how it can be interpreted uh, against uh, LGBT families. Because, of course, if you look at the language of the law, I engage in homosexual propaganda every waking minute, as long as I fail to tell my children that we're uh, worse than the family next door. Because any 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 example of homosexuality, uh, any example of uh, what they call non-traditional sexual relations, uh, any claim to social equality is criminalized by this law. So what can... Americans who are appalled by what's going on in Russia, myself included, how can we get involved? What can queers here and straight people do uh, to help? And what shouldn't people do? What, what would be harmful and what would be helpful? You know, I actually don't believe that anything can be harmful. I think people should do things. I, I believe in, in, in doing stuff and trying to help. Some things may be more useful. Some things may be less useful. There are a couple of efforts to raise money for LGBT groups in Russia. Uh, there are LGBT activists in Russia. They are incredibly brave to stay there and fight. Uh, I, I have an incredible amount of respect for them. 
I don't have a lot of hope for what they can accomplish, but certainly as long as they're they're fighting, they should be supported. Uh, another thing that's really important is keeping this in the media, so uh, because it's not going to mitigate the the random violence and the street violence and the vigilante violence, but it will at least help people who are publicly out and who are public as activists stay safer. As long as the world is watching, mm-hmm. they will be alive. Uh, and then finally, you know, my personal cause right now is LGBT refugees. We have a full-blown LGBT refugee crisis uh, of, of, of Russians coming to this country and going to other countries. There's um, Immigration Equality, which is a group that helps LGBT refugees, is reporting hundreds of percent rise month on month compared to last year in the number of Russians seeking asylum in this country. Uh, Russia is now by far the largest group uh, that, that that they're helping, which is not to say that they're that everywhere else in the world things are better, but right now you know, this, 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 this is the crisis of, of the moment. But also the asylum process is incredibly lengthy and incredibly complicated. People come here, it takes them time to get a lawyer, it takes them time to collect documents, it takes them time to file an asylum claim, then they wait for a couple of years for a hearing, and they don't get, have the right to work until about 180 days into the waiting period. So that means that they need money to live on, they need places to live, they need help writing their resumes, they need help retraining, uh, they need legal help. Uh, I'm especially worried about people who are coming here with children or who are considering leaving Russia with children, because, of course, these are the people who are most vulnerable, but they're also least able to just pick up and leave. How do you leave and live uh, what they call out of status for two years uh, not knowing how to, how are you going to support your family or give your child an education? Is there a website where people could go to learn more about this? Uh, you know what? Not yet, but uh, you're right. We should we should create one. Um, meanwhile, there's immigration equality, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, meanwhile, I think if you, well, you can contact. Um, Rusa LGBT, which is a, an association of Russian-speaking uh, LGBT people in New York, and I think there's a branch starting in Boston. Uh, and obviously, asylum and refugee issues are, are very high on their agenda. Now, I'm sure you're aware of the situation in Uganda, where there's this vicious anti-gay law that may or may not be passed. In Nigeria, where this vicious anti-gay law was enacted, and mobs are stoning gay people and courts are arresting them, people being abducted and tortured to give the names of other gay people. Do you think there's some link or some parallel between what's happening in Africa and what's happening in Russia? What, what, what's the common denominator there? Well, there's definitely a parallel. Uh, one, of the, uh, uh, one of the unifying factors is, of course, the role of the U.S. far right, which is a great exporter of, of hate uh, to the rest of the world. And uh, people who are, uh, you know, these far-right actors who are finding themselves increasingly marginalized in this country are finding huge audiences in Russia. The Paul Cameron's, Scott Lively, uh, they've, they've addressed the Russian parliament, uh, they've recorded speeches. The World Congress of Families is going to hold its annual conference in Moscow this year in September, and it's going to be hosted at both the Kremlin and the largest cathedral in the country. Uh, so they're having a great time doing that. Uh, Russia has also become a re-exporter of this. So Russia is taking this uh, out to, to other countries in its former sphere of influence, uh, Russia is actually now developing sort of the ambition of becoming the traditional values capital of the world. Uh, so it's forming a traditional values coalition in the UN, and I think this is where it may, may become more than a parallel. It may actually, you know, there may actually, may actually be direct links. 
between what's happening in Africa and what's happening in Russia. It's so colossally depressing because when I look at Russia and Uganda and Nigeria, I see this effort on the part of countries that have real problems – oligarchies and corruption and the inability to meet the needs of the citizenry and they look to the West where queer people are making tremendous progress, particularly on the marriage equality front and there's this effort to assert their moral superiority over the West by beating up and victimizing queer people, saying you know, whatever else is wrong with Nigeria or Uganda or Russia, at least we're still killing queers. At least we're better than them in that respect. And so that well, does, does exactly that not right. does that not put a responsibility on those of us in the West to be in this fight? If in a way the progress we're making here is helping to fuel the the, the backlash, you know, we used to think we would make progress here and there would be a backlash here, and we're making progress here and the backlash is there. Uh, yeah, that's a really good point. And uh, Putin speaking to uh, Parliament in December with his annual State of the Federation address. He said that Russia was the light of conservative values that was pushing back the darkness of tolerance that is coming from the West. Mm. Uh, so this is the best articulation of the backlash that I've ever heard. Um, yeah, I think this is a great place for the, the U.S. LGBT movement to turn its energies and to, and, and, and to channel some of its money. Um, not not because I think it bears responsibility for what's happening in these countries, um, but because... We're brothers and sisters, and some of us are in grave danger. Masha Gassin, Russian-American journalist, columnist, author, uh, co-editor of the new anthology, Gay Propaganda, Russian Love Stories, out from OR Press. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone with us today, Masha. And um, I'm so happy that you and your family are here with us in New York City. Thank you so much. Um, hi, Dan. My name is Amanda, and I'm in San Francisco, California. So my question is, I just wrote my first erotic novella, and um, I self-published it on, on, a, on Kindle Singles. And my question is, one of my readers told me that they felt that one of the scenes I wrote that had condom use in it was weird, and I should take the condom out. I just felt like I wanted to promote safe sex, so in this novella, I had my character have sex with a condom to try and normalize it. I was wondering if that's something that we want to have in our erotica or if that's something that people, like, isn't necessary. I guess this is a weird question, but I thought I'd ask you. So uh, here's the thing. You, you've written this novel, sexy novel, and you've self-published, and one of your readers said something don't let one reader derail you. That's like you know, putting up a blog and saying, oh my God, one of my commenters or being on Twitter and saying somebody who follows me said and letting that uh, ruin your day. Because if that's the way you're going to write in the world where one reader saying boo is going <laughs> to cause a crisis for you, you're going to go from crisis to crisis to crisis. Normally I don't like – it doesn't really bother me. You can say whatever you want and I'm going to go my own way. But I was like, well, I've never written erotica. What do I know? And maybe – there's like a culture of condoms are bad or something there, but it seems well, ridiculous. There's a culture in erotica of escapism and fantasy. Right. And one of the things that a lot of people want to escape from their regular lives or normal sex life or normal responsibilities when they watch porn or read erotica is disease, is birth control, is condoms, is that barrier. You know, it may not be safe in your actual sex life to go barrier-free, but in erotica, in fantasy, it's perfectly safe. 
In porn, you know, there's that issue of not perfectly safe for the performers necessarily. Right. Which is why I think it's so interesting. Uh, I don't know if you saw this, um, but I'm just going to toss this out there, that uh, one porn studio that makes gay porn in L.A., in California, where it's now illegal to make porn without condoms, is digitally erasing the condoms after in, po- in post-production, removing the condoms in post-production to get around the law. Which really goes to what we're talking about here, right? You know, people really want their porn and erotic and fantasy to be condom-free so badly that they can't really sell gay porn often with condoms. They have to to work around this new law, take them off. So what do you? It makes me mad though because I oh I feel like this like promotes a culture of like it's totally okay. See, the stars are doing it. It's in the books, and like I guess that really bugs me. Well. Let's think about, you know, if you want to promote condom use in erotica, you have to find a way, I think, to eroticize condom use, which is not just like those safe sex is hot sex campaigns from the like late 80s and early 90s around HIV. But, Mm -hmm. you know, people use condoms and, you know, when a relationship gets serious or people test or whatever, then they begin to not use condoms and then they make the decision actively to go condom free. And that can be intense and bonding and sexy to go condom free. Right. And I think that's normal, Absolutely. the desire to be condom free and to get there in a relationship. And I think, you know, if you wanted to write erotica where you eroticized that process, which is actually erotic when you get to that point of getting to put the condoms aside, which is where most long term relationships go. Right. That said, I don't think that you as an erotic writer have a responsibility to wrap everything in latex because people ought to be using condoms. I think people, <laughs> people know they ought to be using condoms. If you want to include condoms in your erotica, I think you need to find a way to do it erotically. Okay. And like, I feel like that's what I did. Like I tried to make it part of the like lead up and the temptation and like, I'm going to tease you by not putting it in yet. I'm going to put a condom on it first and tried to make it sexy. <laughs> and you know what? I haven't read it. Maybe it fucking is sexy and it's just this one reader with a hang-up about condoms that, that's so severe that any reference to or mention of or incorporation of condoms ruins it for him. And, you know, if you can't let every reader be an editor. You can't because then you can't, okay. then you can't write. So if you did it in a sexy right. way... So I'm just going to trust my gut and be like, I wrote it sexy and it also gets kind of a safe sex across too. Exactly. But, you know, safe sex moralizing isn't your job as an, uh, as a, an erotica writer. Okay. So, That's actually good to hear because I feel like I, want it to, I wanted it to be my job and it was hindering me from – doing some different things. You know, sometimes when you read erotica that's that's dangerous, whether it's, you know, BDSM or, um, you know, multi-partners or gangbangs or orgies or condom-free, uh, you will see sometimes the, the, the writer will include a note at the end that says, this was a work of fantasy. Everyone should be safe and thoughtful in their practices and use protection. So if you mm. want that out at the end, you can totally get it. Okay. You can absolve yourself. Little active contrition <laughs> footnote at the end, encouraging your readers uh, to not be muck fucking morons, which hopefully they aren't, <laughs> and they know that this is right. a work of erotic fiction versus your prosaic sexual reality, which requires safety and condoms. Right. Okay. Since you're anonymous here, can you tell us what the story's about, and you want to tell people where they can find it, and then all the savage love um, listeners can go tell, can go pour in and read it, and let you know if your condom incorporation was sexy. I would love that. Um, it's written under the name Amanda Artemis, and it's called Cafe Revival, and it's about a 20-something unemployed girl who gets dumped via text and then has a lot of kind of sensual escapades while she tries to navigate that landscape. Wow. Does she have a lot of rebound sex with guys she leads on? 
Um, no, she <laughs> she has a threesome with her roommates and then has a flirtation with her uh, with her barista that she's going to the local cafe and drinking coffee and alcohol with. So how much of this is autobiographical? Is there a barista in your life that you would like to fuck the shit out of? There is not a barista in my life I would like to fuck the shit out of, but that would be nice. Uh, I actually wait. just had the idea because there are these... How, oh, is that, how is that possible? There are like 400 baristas just in Seattle that I would like to fuck the shit out of. Everywhere I go, I see a barista I want to fuck the shit out of. And you don't even have one? I feel like in San Francisco, them are gay, which is not helping my situation. But um, and, the straight ones yeah, have sh- and the straight ones have those shitty, ugly beards that all straight guys in San Francisco have now. My favorite barista does have a shitty, ugly beard, and we have a book club together, and I'm like, I feel like if maybe you were slightly more attractive, this would work out better. Well, hopefully he's a listener, and he'll know now to shave that fucking ugly beard off. <laughs> uh, I could it, probably just tell give us, give us the name of, uh, Give us your pen name and the uh, name of the story one more time before we let you go. Um, Amanda Artemis, and this, uh, the story is Cafe Revival. Good to talk to you. Thanks, Dan. Hey, Dan. I'm a 26-year-old straight male. I've I've been with the same girl since I was 17, and she's the only girl I've ever had sex with. Uh, Last year, we moved in together, but uh, my desires and curiosity about experiencing other women have just completely taken control of my brain lately. Uh, There was a lot of sexual passion between us when we were teenagers, but I'm not attracted to her the way I used to be. I've been feeling like a horny teenager as of late, and uh, I seem to get aroused at the mere mention of other women. Uh, all that said, the problem is she really and truly is my best friend, and I know a breakup will be devastating for both of us, especially her. Uh, I've gone so far as to show her some of your stuff in an attempt to maybe get her in a monogamous state of mind, uh, but she made it clear that that was out of the question. So please help me, oh great one. You know what you need to do. And there's nothing I can say that's going to make it any easier uh, on your girlfriend. Um, you need to end this relationship. You're done. You've been together a long time. Um, the, the, the sexual passion is no longer there. The attraction is no longer there. The question you need to ask yourself in your mid-20s is, are you prepared to fake it for the next 50 fucking years? And if the answer is no, if that's not something that you can do, you need to kindly – as kindly as possible, as considerately as possible, as compassionately as possible, end this. However kind, considerate, and compassionate you are, it is going to be painful for your girlfriend. There is no way around that. You know what's going to be more painful for your girlfriend in the aggregate? Being with someone who isn't attracted to her, who doesn't want to be with her, who wants the relationship over but doesn't have the balls to say it for fear of hurting her because then you're going to hurt her in a thousand other little ways. She is going to perceive that Every day, over and over, every time you have sex with her or don't have sex with her or reject her, she is going to be cut. She is going to die the death of a thousand little cuts. People have been trapped in relationships like this that they don't want to end but the other person wants to end and it's awful. They look back when the end finally comes and the end will inevitably come. They look back on those years together and they go, oh, he wanted out. All that time. All that time we were miserable. It wasn't me. It wasn't my fault. It wasn't anything I really could do or fix. Even though I was working so hard to fix it, it was just he was done and he didn't have the courage to pull the plug because he didn't want to hurt me. So he hurt me. Instead of hurting me horribly one day, a hurt that I will recover from and I could have gotten over and moved on to someone else, he hurt me a thousand little ways every day for years. Don't do that. You know, my... 
dad left my mom. My parents got divorced after 20-something years of marriage and they had four teenagers at the time. And my dad left my mom and it was the worst thing that ever happened to my mom. She didn't think she would ever recover. And you know what? My mom got the fuck over it. There was a couple of really ugly months after 20-something years of marriage and four children and Catholic and the ordained deacon husband and the marriage encounter sessions they used to run together. How humiliating to have your marriage end if you were that person. My mother was very invested in being married and being Catholic and being married in the sacred sense. One man, one woman for life, forever. God, Jesus, all of that. And she got over it. Took a while, took a few months to before mom could get on her feet. But she got on with her life. She met a new man, fell in love. They got married. They were together until my mother passed away. If my mother could get over it after 20-something years of marriage, your girlfriend can get over it. After, what, seven, eight years of dating and a year of living together, she'll get over it. She will be fine. She will survive. It is in a way when people say, oh, I couldn't leave. It would be too painful. It would destroy her or him. What they're saying is I'm so awesome that they couldn't survive without me. You know what? I bet you're great. You're not that awesome. No one is. She will survive without you. It's over sexually, emotionally, everything for you. I bet she knows it. She perceives it and it's painful for her. Do the right thing and end it cleanly, compassionately, and as kindly as possible. Hi, Dan. I am a 25-year-old straight female calling from New York City, although perhaps I curious would be a more fitting title for me after I ask this question. Um, recently, I've been having fantasies about a woman going down on me, eating my pussy, and uh, no reciprocation on my end. Um, I'm not anti that. Just this, in this particular fantasy, um, that doesn't happen. It's a one-way street. Um, and so I guess my question is to you, how do I go about finding a woman who would be into this without making her feel used? I'm sure that what you're going to say is that there are plenty of women out whose fantasies are to eat out a straight girl, but I don't know exactly how to go about doing that. I'm active on OkCupid, but not for this kind of stuff. You know, this is a question uh, that I probably shouldn't feel alone. I think I'm going to need a lesbian assist on this or a dyke assist on this. Joining me on the phone, Leah Delaria, actor, jazz singer, comedian, and womanizer. She plays Big Boo on Orange is the New Black, which is amazing. And Leah is amazing. Um, amazing on that show. Amazing when I saw you in the, the tour of uh, the Broadway smash Chicago. Amazing when I've seen you do your own jazz show, Leah. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone with us. My pleasure, my pleasure, my pleasure. Uh, so, 25-year-old straight by curious woman wants to find a dyke who'll eat her pussy without any expectation of <laughs> pussy eating in return. Is this a thing? We know it exists in Gayland. There are plenty of gay dudes out there on Craigslist looking for straight guys who just want to be sucked off and they're happy to do it. Does the lesbian equivalent exist? Are there lesbian <laughs> pussy eaters out there who want to eat straight women pussy without any expectation of return? I'm sorry. Do you have any idea who you're talking to? <laughs> I believe this is Leah I Delaria. Am, I am the cover girl for the lesbian that wants to eat straight girl pussy and doesn't want any reciprocation. In fact, I would have to say that in sometimes is very, 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 very butch. It, I was, you know, I kind of knew that, that, that that was a butch thing. There are a lot of butch dykes out there that I've heard about over the years or heard from or talked to who mm -hmm. want to eat pussy, want to fuck, but don't want 
their pussies eaten. They, they want to do. They want to be the active. They don't want to ever right. be the passive. So this is That's this total is total top. Total top. You're looking. You're talking about a total top. And you are a total top. I am a total top, most so, definitely. So we should just hook you up with this caller. I think this is very easy to do. In fact, I'm not the only total top out there. What we should do is tell her to go to the Cubby Hole. It's on the corner of 4th Street and 12th Street in New York City. And I'm sure she will find many girls there that would love to eat her pussy without any reciprocation. And that does. her concern is that if she puts this need or desire out there, that the women that she's communicating with or putting that out there to are going to feel used. Does a woman, does a butch dyke feel used when she gets to eat a straight woman's she pussy? She can keep on using me until she use me up. That's what I say about that. But she'll probably get grief. Like, if she put that in a personal ad on OkCupid, she would probably get grief from some, from some crusading, everything must be egalitarian at all times types, right? Absolutely. I mean, if you're going to put that on uh, OkCupid or anywhere that lesbians might read it, you're always going to get grief from lesbians. I mean, it's just a part of our culture. We like to catch. So, so somebody's going to be out there telling her she's doing this wrong. But let me be the first to say to you that you're not doing anything incorrectly, that there are many of us out there that are happy to, to, uh, to accommodate you, my darling. And please, you know, just look around. If you, see, if you see somebody that you look at and you go, wow, I thought that was a dude, she'll probably eat your pussy. <laughs> Good to know. Um- <laughs> So, so the next, I love making Dan Savage laugh. So the next time I'm in the grocery store and I, act, I realize I've accidentally been sort of cruising, eye-fucking a butch dyke, I'm going to run before she eats my pussy. Yeah, don't let her eat your pussy, honey. Don't let her, don't let her go for the mangina. I, I, I think you meant my boy pussy, not my mangina. Your boy, not your mangina, your boy pussy. You're right. That's what I meant. <laughs> All right. Next question. We're going to keep you around for a few more uh, lesbian questions. Is that all right? Sounds good. Sounds good to me. Hi, Dan. I'm a 30-something poly dyke. I've recently uh, met somebody last four or five months or so that I'm really into, um, and who's partnered with a man. For some reason, I'm having a really hard time dealing with the fact that there is a penis involved in my sex life, um, even if indirectly, and I can't figure out why I'm having such an issue with it. Um, I've definitely had partners before that slept with men and it hasn't affected me this way. Um, The situation is a little bit different because, one, I really like her, uh, and two, since it's a long-distance relationship, when I do spend time with her, it tends to be the three of us sharing the same space. So their sex life is more in my face. I know when and where um, they're fucking. I don't think this is about jealousy. I've done poly successfully for many, many years, um, and I typically... I'm aware of when I am feeling jealous, and it's definitely not a concern about disease. I'm generally super sex positive and often watch porn involving cis men, so this isn't about heterophobia or penis hatred or any of that, um, but I don't know what it is about. I really like him and care a lot about him, and I totally support their relationship, and I'm afraid if I don't get over this, it's either going to damage my relationship with her or hers with him. So any advice you can give any resources would be much appreciated so leah have you ever dated uh, a woman who had a boyfriend oh yeah i used to date i dated a lot of straight girls and by curious and, and by girls did it i wouldn't sque- even call them by curious they were did, just completely by did it squick you out that the girl that you were with was also with somebody with a penis sometimes it squeaked me out so much that i just kind of basically stopped doing it although i still do occasionally mm-hmm you know what I mean? And, the, uh, and I think, 
personally, I would, wouldn't mind just addressing directly to this, to this woman that what I think a big part of her problem is, is that, how do I put this? She seems to be very intellectual to me. She's very about her head. And I think she might be forgetting her id and it might be forgetting just the, the, you know, the, just the, the visceral feeling of sex here. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And uh, for me, I think that she's trying to say that she's not jealous, but I kind of want to call this spade a spade. It sounds like she's jealous. Really? Yeah. Now, do you think I'm wrong? I shouldn't be questioning the way she feels about this, but yeah, I just feel like maybe she just forgot how sex is just just so visceral and just so uh, of your body and uh, and these feelings are like that. Do you mm -hmm. know what I mean? And I think sometimes, especially in modern society, we get so wrapped up in being correct and thinking correctly and being correct that we just forget to be. Now she does say that she's done. You know. You're saying maybe it's a jealousy issue. She does say she's done poly, quote, successfully for many years, although she is 30 and single. So how successful have you been doing poly for how long have you? I mean, 30. 30? What's many years? What's many years? But, but I bet if you could pin her down, she would insist that jealousy isn't an issue for her. She's been with people or been partnered with people in the past who had other partners, even other male partners. Uh -huh. But there's something about interacting with him that's making it something she can't wish away or ignore or pretend isn't going on. But she also says she really likes this woman. Do you know what I mean? And she mm -hmm. makes a point of saying that, that she's really into her. So I'm, I think possibly reexamining the jealousy issue might be a part of what's going down with her. And I'm only saying that because I've been so, I have been so that person saying, I'm not jealous, I'm not jealous, I'm not jealous. And then I had to look myself in the mirror and go, you're jealous. <laughs> that is jealousy. <laughs> Quit lying to yourself and deal with it in whatever way that you can. Do you know what I mean? But I don't think jealousy necessarily disqualifies you from being in a poly or an open relationship, which some people Never. believe. Because I, I think processing jealousy and working through those feelings with your partner or partners is one thing that can make your poly relationships or open relationships work. You address those issues. You hash out your insecurities. You come to some sort of arrangement or accommodation that it takes into account your feelings and your insecurities and makes you feel better and more secure about the setup. Absolutely. In fact, I'll go so far as to say that people who are always screaming about monogamy and non-monogamy, I personally, and have always been, I've pretty much always been non-monogamous. Non-monogamy, I think, is way harder than monogamy because it requires those conversations way more often. And one conversation I think maybe this woman needs to have is it seems to me that the trigger, if I can use the abused term trigger, just the, <laughs> just the hearing the word trigger is triggering for me, I have to say at this stage. <laughs> but the trigger for her seems to be being in the same apartment, listening to her girlfriend get fucked by this guy. Right. She cites what? that specifically, like it's a long distance relationship, so I'm with her. When I'm with her, I'm also with him and I hear them having sex. They need to take time. She also, I think, needs to take time not to have sex in the place where the guy is as well. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I mean, for me personally, um, might be a nice romantic night to take a, get a hotel room. Get a hotel room or the girlfriend comes, sees, comes and sees you. What you say. Like, yeah. it's, this is the, com the kind of accommodation you can come to in a poly or an open relationship when Absolutely. jealousy is an issue. It's just to say, you know what? I love you and he's great and I don't begrudge you this relationship with him and I want to be a part of it. But the only way I can be a part of it is if I'm apart from it a little bit. So you come yep. to me or when we're together in your town, it's when he's somewhere else or you guys don't fuck that weekend. I get to fuck you that weekend. Yeah. See, that's a, that's a, these are the conversations that you have to have in order to take care of your needs. I think in any relationship, 
You know, it's just, you must be able to say, look, this is what, this is what makes me happy. You know, I don't want to hear, I don't want to hear you fucking your boyfriend. It bothers me. It disturbs me. How do we deal with that? Because she's going to need to hear how her, how, how her girlfriend feels about that as well. Right. And if that's not an accommodation that can be made for her feelings and her insecurities, maybe this isn't the right relationship. That maybe it's not working, you know, and that's all, like, only a decision that she can make herself. Hi, Jan. I'm a 48-year-old femme dyke, and my spouse is a 55-year-old butch dyke. We got together nine years ago after meeting at a leather sex club and we enjoyed about five years of super hot sex before some major life stress hit us. And while these storms together deepened our love in many ways, very sadly, sex was a casualty. We've had about four years of declining sex and are now into full-on LBD. My question is, What are some hot ideas for butches and femmes to find their way back to each other? Or is this just a part of being together for a long time? This is the longest LTR I've ever been in. I'm confused as to whether I should push to change this or just accept with gratitude what we have. Okay, Leah, she uses the the acronym LBD. Do you know what that stands for? Lesbian bed death. <laughs> Which, uh, can I just say this about that? Because how exciting that we get that term. Do you know what I mean? It's like nobody else has anything quite like that in their world. But lesbian, it's, you know, it's like Mary and Jenny sitting in a tree. K-I-S-S-I-N-G. First comes love, then comes bed death. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so it doesn't make you want to run into the arms of lesbiana, does it? It doesn't. You know, I've talked about this in the past. I think part of the problem is women are socialized yes. to to be acted upon sexually and they're stigmatized yes. and shamed if they own their desires or they're the aggressor. So sometimes when you get two women in a relationship, they're both hanging back waiting for the other to initiate and that can take on an inertia of its own. That can be, become that can grow to be LBD when mm-hmm. if you're in a male couple relationship or a straight relationship, there's at least one or two instigators in the room. Absolutely. Now, here's how that, to me, doesn't apply in a butch-fem relationship. Because butches, and from, you know, culturally, we are the aggressor, right? Uh, we are taught not to have that shame. Now, how much we beat, beat that up, I guess, is upon the individual. But mm-hmm. we are encouraged not to have that shame. That, that shame. We are taught by our, our butch-dyke uncles and fathers not to. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, that's what you're supposed to be. You're supposed to be the aggressor. But you're still overcoming. A butch dyke Absolutely. who is taught by your uncles and fathers in butch dyke land to overcome that is still overcoming that and may slide back into it or not fully... Uh- well, I think a couple of things, if you don't mind, Dan. I'm going to also address their ages. At their, the, I believe we said 48 and 55. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, there's this other thing going on right there biologically. It's called perimenopause or menopause. And when women get to be that age, they do have, uh, they lose a lot of their desire for sex. Really? Hormonally, yeah, that's a big side issue of menopause. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of us don't like to talk about it because, let's face it, it's not sexy. Um, as, <laughs> as my good friend Sandra Bernhardt said to me one day, honey, it's just not sexy. I don't want to talk about it. But, mm-hmm. you know, uh, I think sometimes you have to talk about these things. That is a big part of it. I think also, like any relationship, they were together, what, 10 years? I think they've been together about 10 years now. They had five years, years of super hot sex, and then right. at some point it sort of dribbled away. 
yeah, I think we get used to each other sometimes, if you know what I mean. And we think, oh, the next day we'll have sex or the next day we'll have sex. And what happens is I think that also will turn into your lesbian bed death scenario. I think what's good about these guys is she talks about how I believe she said they were, uh, they were into leather, SM and BD, yeah? Mm-hmm. And so they're already, I would say, predisposed to an interesting and different lifestyle. I mean, maybe what they can do is start talking about going out and, and uh, maybe opening this up and shaking this up a little bit mm-hmm. and, and trying to get some of that. I think they also have to, um, I you know, think you would have to try to have sex. I mean, really make a point, uh, make some dates, talk to each other about it. Uh, Friday night is date night, anything mm-hmm. you want, you know, something like that to get back in the swing of it. I'm very touched by this, uh, this question, if you know mm-hmm. what I mean. It, 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 it makes me feel for them. Have you ever experienced les- lesbian bed death personally? Well, <laughs> I would say for me, I'm laughing a little bit, Dad, because I, I'm, I'm horny. I'm a horny person. I'm always uh, GGG, if you know what I mean. And uh, <laughs> I think you know what I mean. I, I think I do. It. Yeah, what can I say? I'm a savage lover. Um, they, I've always been that person. So uh, the bed death that I have been have experienced in a my in a previous long term relationship came from being denied sex. Mm. You know, wanting to have sex and being told no. And that sucks. That's so that painful. beyond sucks. And my like my big, I had a I had a drought of of many months for a while that was really horrifying for me because in my entire sexual uh, life I'd never gone that long without so sex. Did you find a way back, which is what this woman is interested in uh, hearing about? Is there a way back, or did you have to end the relationship? Uh, we ended the we ended up ending the relationship. Hmm. That's not what this woman wants to hear. I think you I think you really hit on it though when you talked about the BDSM aspect because you know often with BDSM that when two people who are into it have basically shown each other all they got BDSM wise they've done all their scripts and dramas and scenes they kind of get less interested in performing that with each other anymore because they've both seen that play. They want to see somebody else play. And I but mean, if they bring in somebody else, if they bring in a third, they can reignite all those dramas, relive all absolutely. those scenes, and it can actually re-spark their interest in each other sexually. So I'm going to side with you, Leah, and say bring in that third. Bring in that third. You can also, I mean, there are so many, uh, thank God for you and this, uh, you know, a new attitude towards sexuality, especially among lesbians. There are tons of parties I'm not sure where this person is, but if you're in a major city, there, odds are there's going to be a Dyke SM party going on at least once a month in your city. Find it. Hi, Dan. I am just calling in regards to a question that you sort of asked in a response to why lesbians are very into watching gay male porn. And I kind of have an answer for you. The reason I watch it is because... It has the gay that we like, whereas lesbian porn is very fake, and it seems fake because it doesn't look pleasurable. It's something that you wouldn't want done to you, but when we watch gay porn, it actually has the penetration, the orgasm, and everything, and you know it's real because you're looking at it and you're watching it happen. Okay, Leah, if gay porn was all claymation and lesbian porn was real, I would still watch the gay porn. (laughs) So I don't think this answer for why lesbians like gay porn satisfies me. 
Do you watch gay porn? I am so sorry for laughing so hard at that. But that was one of the funniest things I've ever heard any human being say. Um, and Dan, you're going to be surprised at my answer. I do watch gay male porn. That doesn't surprise me, actually. It doesn't surprise you. Not yeah. at all. I totally do. You know, I love porn, and I started out when I was young watching porn um, because there was always, like, some woman-on-woman action in porn, but it's always, like, these straight girls with these huge fake tits, mm-hmm. you know, that, you, you know, I'm, I'm not big on I'm I'm happy if you want to get fake tits. That's great. And I've had sex with fake tits, but occasionally, you know, when I suck a tit, I don't want it to suck back. That's kind of my thing. <laughs> so I, wait, wait, you know, wait, 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 wait. Fake, fake tits suck back? <laughs> It was just, it was sort of a joke. <laughs> it's, it's a mental image I can't actually handle. It's a great mental image, though, doesn't it? But it pretty much, I think it sums up how we feel. I'm going to go lie down in a dark room for half an hour <laughs> while you finish answering this question. <laughs> you know, the other thing about the, the straight porn is that the girls are coming at each other and they all have these nails that, you know, go like having sex with them would be like having sex with Edward Scissorhands. So okay, you, you want to, okay, you know what I mean? That, that's mainstream lesbian porn, which, right. is, which is made so for straight guys, which is made for straight guys, but there's tons of lesbian produced dyke porn out there okay. for the last 20 On to years. On to that. It's crap. Most of it is crap, except for the crash pad, um, which also I believe runs live online now. Mm-hmm. Um, almost all lesbian porn that's created by lesbians for lesbians makes me want to kill myself. Okay, wait. All right. I'm going to have to stop you here then. Even if all gay male porn was crap, it was claymation and it was bad claymation. <laughs> you would still. Or it looked like clutch cargo cartoons from the 70s. I would still watch it over the realest, hottest lesbian porn on earth. If lesbian porn was hot and real and gay porn was shitty and fake, I would still watch the gay porn. That's because your biggest, you know, your biggest um, sexual organ is probably your, is probably your brain, just like mine, but I'm going to say that my brain is even a bigger part of my sexuality as a woman than your brain is as a man. You're onto something there. Go, I think I go am. Go with it. Go with it. I'm going to go with it, darling. I think that, that your penis drives you much harder uh, than, than my cunt drives me. Mm-hmm. I think my brain is a big part of what I'm doing sexually. I mean, are we, and, just, are we just backing into that female sexuality is much more fluid? Studies that have shown that like gay men and straight men are turned on by specifically straight or specifically gay porn, but women are turned on by gay porn, bi porn, straight porn, monkey porn. Is that it? I kind of think that, hon. I really do. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not trying, you know, I hope I haven't, I haven't stepped into a territory that's going to get me in a lot of trouble with everybody out there, but I an- honestly believe that that's part of it. Mm-hmm. And um, I'll even go so far as to say, look, I'm a, I'm, I'm, I, like, I like what I do. I like being a top. I love doing the BDSM kind of life that I live. You know, I'm a, I'm a butch top. So the aggressiveness of that sort of sex is really hot to me. And when I see that, and I know that, that when I watch that with gay male porn, it's so aggressive. It's so like that, that it's hot to me. What can I say? It's hot mm-hmm. to me. I think you don't yeah. have to be worried about people getting angry about that because the only, <laughs> the only reason people would be angry when you say male sexuality functions like this and female sexuality oh. functions differently is if you believe male sexuality is the standard by which all sexuality should be judged. Female sexuality, I think this expansiveness and this fluidity is its superpower and it's to be envied in a way. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. I think so too. And uh, just, again, that's it. So uh, for me, I love watching that. Now, having said that, uh, I also, there are, there are lines that I have drawn. I mean, I was once uh, shown a, 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 
a shit video that was like, ah! yeah, I started <laughs> on a bet that I couldn't watch the whole thing with me going, I can watch anything, oh, yeah. put it on, put it on. And it, they timed me. I was out the door in 30 seconds. <laughs> Yeah, you know what? I am the only person who writes about sex for a living in America who hasn't watched Two Girls, One Cup. I okay, read about it. I read about it, and I thought, I don't need to see that. I don't need to see it. I don't, I wa- like I don't watch. I don't watch Fox News for the same reason I didn't watch Two Girls, One Cup. <laughs> it's why I, get I, it. to... I, I know what's happening. I know it's disgusting, and I don't need to watch. Funny, it's why I haven't gone to see Sleep No More. <laughs> <laughs> to me, it sounds like the public masturbation that I don't want to see. Leah Delaria, actor, jazz singer, comedian, and womanizer. She plays Big Boo on Orange is the New Black, which comes back to our computers when, Leah? Oh, uh, like they tell us anything. Can you give us like a... Te- oh, Dan, if I, I could tell you, but then I'd have to kill you. Oh, <laughs> I was hoping we could get just at least one spoiler out of you. Does Pennsylvania live? I can't tell you anything. You know what I can tell you? This is what I can tell you, that I'm in season two, that it, it, that it will come out this year, and I'm, I'm not supposed to give an opinion, but I think I can give this one. I think nobody will be mad at me if I say I don't believe a single human being is going to be disappointed with season two of, of Orange is the New Black. It's well, really good. Season, it's great. Season one was amazing. It's such oh, a smart you. fucking show. Um, all these amazing uh, actresses, actors, actors, actresses, whatever, uh, Laverne Cox, you, uh, the leads, everybody in the show is just so amazing. It's just so wonderful to see so many women being given such great parts and tearing it up. Yeah. I yeah. love, love, love the show. We, uh, you know, that was the, everything you said is one of the reasons we all love the, uh, the reasons we love this show and, and even more. Do you know what I mean? For me, I love that, that, uh, the Butch Dyke that I portray is always the smartest person in the room. <laughs> and it's, you know what I mean? Cause it's always, Butch Dykes are always portrayed as kind of stupid truck drivers, pool table hoggers, mm-hmm. you know, that, uh, get in fights and bars. So it's really nice to see this one. She's, she's smart, not only smart, smartest person in the room. You know, and ready to take anybody on with anything intellectual. Love that about her. It's great. Can't wait for season two. Leah Delaria, thanks for jumping on the phone with us today and helping me field these lesbo questions. <laughs> you call me anytime you need any lesbo help. I will. <laughs> Especially if you need me to eat your pussy, honey. <laughs> My boy pussy. Your boy. Sorry. I'm sorry. Especially if you need Leah Delaria to eat Dan Savage's boy pussy. Now that's porn no one would watch. <laughs> We, could, we couldn't get people into shit videos to watch that. <laughs> the people into shit videos would be like, I'm out of here. 30 seconds, I'm out of the room. I'm out of here 30 seconds. I'm not watching this German scat video anymore. <laughs> Thanks oh so my much, God. Leah. Loving you like crazy, Daniel. Love you too. Bye. Hi, Dan. My name's Summer, and I'm a 36-year-old woman. I have a 22-year-old sister, and we're having a bit of a debate about online dating. Um, She recently met a guy on Tinder and went on a date with him, and she told me and our mom where she was going. They were meeting in a park and then planning to walk on the beach and then go out to dinner or drinks. And... We thought that that was okay, but then when she went, she ended up being gone, and we couldn't contact her for five hours, and we got really freaked out about it about maybe three hours in, and finally she called us and said she was totally fine, but we were debating on whether we were reasonable in being freaked out or not, and 
I was hoping you could give maybe some tips for online dating safety so that I can share those with her and uh, keep her safe. It sounds like she did it right. She met some guy on Tinder. She told you guys where she was going and who she was meeting. The only thing she did wrong was when her phone was blowing up with texts from mom and her sister, she didn't just dash off a quick text to say, hey, I'm fine. He's really nice. No problem, which she should have done. That would have been considerate. But in the grand scheme of things, it's not that big a sin. You know, Before texts, before cell phones, you wouldn't have been able to be in constant contact with her during her date. If she had set this up through P.O. boxes and newspaper ads the way people used to do this kind of dating, you guys would have known where she was going, who she was meeting, maybe had that guy's phone number if she shared it with you. But you would have had to wait until the date was over to hear from her. And then if she didn't turn up in 24 hours or 48 hours, then you would go to the police. That's how it used to be. You have the luxury now of hearing from her during the date. So – I don't think it's like that terrible that five hours in she hadn't told you where she was. Millions of people every day meet online through Tinder, through Grindr, through OkCupid, through Recon, through all the sites that now exist to hook people up. And if this was some charnel house of murder and mayhem, right, if every other guy was Jeffrey Dahmer or Richard Speck, there would be bodies lining the street. It would look like a plague hit every American city, right? There would be dead people everywhere. And that's just not the case. Online dating for the most part is safe. I think the axe murderers realize that if you meet people online, you're creating a digital trail that is going to bring the police right to your door. So our smart axe murderers are not for the most part on Tinder or Grinder or Craigslist or Recon or OkCupid. So I'm going to be Solomon here and cut the baby in half. You guys need to calm the fuck down. When she tells you where she is and where she's going, she can have four or five hours of privacy. She, on the other hand, needs to recognize that it would have been a courtesy as her phone was blowing up just to excuse herself and go to the bathroom for a second and dash off a text to you guys saying, I'm fine, having a good time, call you when it's over. Uh, hi, Dan. I'm calling about a medical condition that I have. Um, I have a chronic hand pain condition, which basically just means that it's it's kind of like carpal tunnel, but it's quite painful for me to put weight on my hands. And so the last time that I was having sex uh, with a girl made it a bit of a problem. Uh, missionary and anything else where I'm on top was just painful after about a minute. So I ended up changing positions pretty frequently, which I think made it kind of hard for her uh, to get off. And then for some reason, just her being on top didn't really wasn't really doing it for either of us. I don't think she'd done it for a while. Then with Doggy, when I suggested she wasn't really comfortable with it, and I think she had bad experiences with it in the past. It was a one-night stand, and I didn't really say anything about my hands going into it. There's no obvious signs that I have this problem. I usually just go about my life without really telling, like bringing it up that much. Um, so I guess I'm a little bit insecure with it in the bedroom, just because I kind of assume that it's going to be a bit of a turnoff if I lead with that or bring it up in the middle of anything to explain my medical condition just kind of seems like a turnoff. So I guess my questions are, uh, should I lead with the hand problem so that they know that? Like, do you think that there's a problem with it? Do you think it is a turnoff or is that just in my head? And I guess, do you, can you suggest any positions that might work 
for me in next time. I don't know why this would inspire such insecurity in you. Just fucking tell them. I have weak wrists. I have this chronic condition where I can't put weight on my hands for more than a minute or, or it's extremely painful. And most women will react by going, oh, poor baby. And then you will be accommodated during a one-night stand or an anything night stand or a multi-night stand or a long-term relationship. If you also tell the people that you're going to have sex with that you have this problem, this condition, this disability, they're not going to be freaked out. If you roll a couple of bolsters over, you get some hard, foamish but comfortable uh, rectangular pillows that you can put on either side of somebody when you're in the missionary position so you can rest over them using your elbows to prop yourself up instead of like most men in the missionary position resting all of your weight on your hands in the missionary position propping yourself up. So there are accommodations, doggy style, which won't be a problem for all women. A lot of women like doggy style or cowgirl, girl on top or some other way for you to prop yourself up or put some fucking hooks in the ceiling and get a goddamn sling. They're fun. They're not just for fist fuckers anymore. Uh, but you won't be accommodated if you don't ask for the accommodation. You will be cheerfully accommodated by anybody who's worth having sex with if you ask for the accommodation. What weirds people out is when you're having sex with someone and there's something wrong. There's something that they know that you don't know that is leading to kind of awkward repositionings during sex or some sort of awkward workaround where they're just not telling you why they don't want to have sex in this position or they can't have sex in this position or they don't want to do this particular thing or that particular thing and they're just kind of bluffing their way through instead of just saying it's much worse to be having sex with someone and there's this great unspoken thing in the room. There's this pink elephant in the room that's not being discussed that you can't tell what the problem is than to just know what the problem is. Tell them what the problem is and anybody who's worth your dick will be happy to work around it with you and for you and for your dick. Hey, Dan, this is a quick question, uh, short and sweet. So I want to say something as gay as fuck. Is that homophobic? There's really no other term that conveys that exact meaning or feeling. But I don't want it to be homophobic. You know, something's gay as fuck. Usable, not usable. Thanks. Bye. It's homophobic. But you can use it. It's the English language. It's yours. You can use it any way you want to. Some people, when they hear you say that, will think that's homophobic. But let's unpack that expression for a second. Are you saying that fucking is gay? All fucking is gay? I mean you're just saying gay as fuck. Fucking therefore is gay. Straight fucking, bi fucking, trans fucking, poly fucking. It's all fucking gay. All fucking is gay. If you want to give all fucking to the gays, if you want to credit us with all sex, if you want to round all sex up – to gay sex and let us have it. I guess that's in a way not homophobic. But I can't imagine you're saying gay as fuck about things that are good or that you like or that are awesome. You're probably saying it about something that's shitty and stupid and terrible, right? So definitely homophobic. But I'm not the language police. I, I think we waste way too much time policing the language. English is crazy and rough and tumble. And in a way, you know – if you say it and there isn't a gay in the forest there to hear it, was it homophobic? But a good rule of thumb, if you wouldn't use that expression in front of your gay friends, then it's homophobic. And if you don't want to be a homophobic person, if you don't want to be perceived as homophobic, don't say it. But maybe you can do a substitution, something that's as pithy, that has the same sort of 
rhythm and percussive consonants. How about instead of gay as fuck, dumb as huck, meaning dumb as Mike Huckabee, the former governor of Arkansas and Fox News chat show host who says idiotic things about women constantly, idiotic things about birth control. It's a right wing fundamentalist dirtbag. Dumb as huck. Just as much fun to say as gay as fuck. And he's actually fucking dumb. He's actually an asshole. He's actually an idiot. He is also now, after attacking American women, after once again, now it is the GOP's grand design to knock the birth control pills out of the mouths of all American sluts. They're really going to the mattresses for this, to try to strip birth control coverage for women and men out of the Affordable Care Act. Knock all those birth control pills out of all those Knock all those birth controls out of the mouths of all those slutty American women, 77% of whom are married women who are using birth control and already have children and don't want to have more right now or ever. It's a dumb fucking thing to say. It's an asshole fucking thing to say. And after saying it, Mike Huckabee is now leading the GOP pack for the 2016 nomination in polls. So attacking sluts including all married American women who are using birth control, 77% of them, obviously appeals to the GOP base. It will win you the nomination, Mike Huckabee. Keep it up. Keep it up because it will lose you the election. So, caller. Gay as fuck, homophobic. Dumb as huck, huckophobic. But the fucker deserves it. We should be afraid of that motherfucker. Huckophobic. Dumb as huck. Yeah, hi, Dan. I was just uh, calling in response to the podcast uh – 379 with some advice for, for a woman who's, who's the dominatrix who's you know, separated from her husband and dating married and traveling men. You know, I know I fully agree with your with your advice, and I think uh, I think uh, the uh, the caller should also ask herself, you know, is it possible that she's going out of her way to select these you know select these people, like these guys that make her feel shitty, particularly the married guys, just to also give herself more excuses to hate men because part of, because of everything she's been through, uh, being angry at him right now is very comfortable, very familiar, and it, it's easy to blame them. And, you know, for a lot of them are doing things that are blameworthy. But is it possible that she's going out of her way to ignore the better guys just so that way, that way she can cling to those familiar feelings of anger and bitterness? I, I really think she should ask herself that. Hi, I'm calling in response to the woman who lost um, over 150 pounds and now is having trouble um, in her dating life with dealing with the fact that some men might be repulsed by knowing what she used to look like. I totally understand your predicament. I lost 100 pounds and I met my husband soon after getting close to my goal weight. And it's really tough to know that if he had met me at my heaviest, he wouldn't have been attracted to me. I wouldn't have been his type. But I was honest with him, and uh, when he sees old pictures of me, he's not repulsed. If I'm making a silly face or something like that, he'll tell me, you were so cute. Uh, because he's in love with me now, he loves me who I was in the past, too. So I would urge you to be honest with the men you date, and I think most of them will actually be incredibly impressed by what you did. Another thing to consider is that most people gain weight as they get older, but because you figured out now how to control your weight, you probably won't fall into the unhealthy eating habits that most people do. So when the girls who grew up thin have gained a lot of weight, you'll probably still be of a healthy weight. And that's really comforting. Um, so that's something to keep in mind. 
Hi, this is in reference to the woman that lost a significant amount of weight in episode 379. I was just calling to let you know, sweetie, I lost 200 pounds in about 10 months after having weight loss surgery. So first and foremost, congratulations. But second, there are going to be douchebags no matter what you do. Thin, big, no matter who you are and what you look like, there are douchebags out there and everybody has to meet them, go through them, deal with them accordingly. However, give them the option to find out who you were and who you are now. It's really important to make sure that they know and understand who you were then and that the person that you are now is still that same person, even though she still looks a little different on the outside. One other point of business before we let you go. I often talk up Hump, which is the Pacific Northwest's biggest, oldest, best, and only amateur porn festival, which happens every year in Seattle, Portland, Olympia, and Bellingham here in the Pacific Northwest. Listeners who don't live here will often call and say, I wish I could come to Hump. I wish I could come to Seattle. I really want to see this amazing porn festival that you curate and now you can, but you don't have to come to Seattle to see it. We are bringing Hump to you. For the first time ever, Hump is going on tour. We launch the National Hump Tour next month in Chicago on February 15th. After that, we'll be going to San Francisco February 29th to March 1st, Madison, Wisconsin, March 8th and 9th, Washington, D.C., March 20th to 24th, Dallas, Texas, April 5th, Long Beach, California, New York City. Hump is going everywhere. More dates are being added in cities as I speak. To order tickets and find out about shows and whether we're coming to your town, go to www.humptour.com. Again, more cities being added each week. Check back or better yet, follow Hump Tour on Facebook or on Twitter. 206-201-2720 is the number here at the Lovecast. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. Lesbians, we'd really love to hear from you if you're watching gay porn. What's in it for you? 206-201-2720. Follow me on Twitter at Fake Dan Savage. Follow Leah Delaria on Twitter at Real Leah Delaria. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at Risk Youth. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading. <laughs>